Today, we uh, continue our study of the book of Hebrews as we come to Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 8, which is considered one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire Bible. Uh, this has been called, Hebrews 1, uh, 6, 1 through 8, it's been called the Rubik's Cube of the Bible. Because no matter how you twist and turn the verses, they just don't seem to fit your theological framework. But just as the Rubik's Cube has a solution, so does this very frustrating puzzle in Hebrews 6. And as we follow sound biblical principles of interpretation, I believe we can solve this ministry. Or this mystery. Now, you'll notice because of the challenges of this passage, uh, your sermon notes are a lot longer this morning than uh, what I normally provide. Uh, you don't have to fill in any blanks. I will not be using the PowerPoint. We're going to take a very deliberate, uh, methodical approach. And all I ask is you don't get ahead of me because I'll just build as we go through this. Well, open your Bibles to Hebrews 6, and let's begin by reading the passage, and then we will go from there. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith towards God. Instruction about the washings and laying on the hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And then here comes the difficult section. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they have been crucified to themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it, and it ends up being burned. That would be better translated, its end is for burning. The thorns and the thistles are for burning. Now, in your sermon notes, what I've done is attempted to answer eight questions related to this passage. And then uh, hopefully we'll have time to conclude with uh, looking at how to apply these verses to our lives. If we don't have time this week, we'll just uh, pick, it back, pick it back up next Sunday where we leave off. So look at the very first question in your sermon notes. Again, I'll be very deliberate. I'll be very methodical. We'll work through this. Uh, I will pause and uh, give a little more commentary at different points. But the first question is, what is the context? Of Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. The first word in verse 1 is therefore, which obviously connects Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 with the preceding verses, 
and Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and in those verses, the author what reproves his readers for being dull of hearing towards God's word, which had stunned their Christian growth and caused them to regress into a state of spiritual immaturity. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8, continues the theme of spiritual maturity with the command in verse 1, which is a controlling thought of the entire passage. Let us press on to maturity. Therefore, the context of the passage is not salvation of the unsaved, but the sanctification of the saved. Now, look at chapter 5. Let's remind ourselves just briefly of uh, this section that uh, it's connected to. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, Concerning him, concerning Jesus, being our heavenly high priest in his ministry, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain why, since you have become dull of hearing. We talked about that. The word of God has become dull to them. Things which were spiritual become dull to them. Uh, they have stopped advancing in the Christian life, applying, appropriating the word of God. And they have regressed, as we see, to, a, uh, to spiritual infancy. Uh, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have needed them for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And it's a very unfortunate that this chapter breaks. And in chapter 6, it says, Therefore, in light of what I've just said about maturity, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So, there's no question about this. The context is, this is a passage written to the same, prompting them to uh, press on to maturity. Now, what is the structure? The second question. What is the structure of Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8? The text consists, in, in the Greek text as well, of three paragraphs. Now, the first paragraph is verses 1 through 3. The second paragraph is verses 4 through 6. And the third paragraph is verses 7 and 8. And they're all connected by the Greek, Greek conjunction, God, which is our English word would be for, F-O-R, or, or because. And you'll find that at the beginning of the second and third paragraphs. So it connects, these words connect the passage together. The leading thought of the text is stated in the first paragraph when he says, let us press on to maturity. And this we will do, what does it say? If God permits. Press on to maturity. No, you can't, don't lay that foundation again. No, and we'll do this. We'll press on maturity if God permits. Let me just pause right there for a moment from your notes. That is a shocking statement. It should just sort of stop us dead in our tracks because it, it is suggesting there are times when God will not permit a Christian to press on to maturity. And of course, that raises the question, well, why? Why would God not permit a Christian to press on to maturity? Now, pick back up in your notes. The second paragraph states the reason 
God would not permit a person to press on to maturity. And the third paragraph is an illustration to clarify and reinforce the truth. Look again at Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8. First paragraph. Therefore, what? Leaving the element of teaching about the Christ. Here's the controlling fault of the entire passage. Let us press on to maturity. Not laying again that foundation. So again, I'm to press on to maturity as a believer. If I'm going to press on, I have to do what? I have to leave the elementary principles. I cannot stay in a spiritual kindergarten all my life playing in the ABC clause. I have to advance further in my Christian walk. And I also can't bother about trying to build the foundation again. Once the foundation is laid, which is Christ Jesus, what is my responsibility as a believer? To build on that foundation. To build a life that would be pleasing and honoring to God. So he says, you need the elementary principles. You press on to maturity. You don't try to lay the foundation again. And just very, very quickly, he mentions six things that are part of the foundation of the Christian faith. And we really believe this was the catechism that was taught to Hebrew Christians in the church in that day. And you notice these three, six things are put in three pairs. You have a repentance from uh, dead works and faith towards God. That's teaching new converts about conversion. About conversion involves turning from your sin to embrace Jesus by faith. Uh, believing that he's canceled out your sin debt through his work on the cross. He's imputed his righteousness to you and given you a right standing before God. The second pair has to do with church polity. He says, of instruction about washings and laying on hands. And then the third pair has to do with prophecy, uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So again, the first paragraph is very, very simple. He's saying, in light of these believers being dull of hearing, in light of the fact that they've regressed to be spiritually immature, they're adult babies spiritually, he says, you've got to leave the elementary principles. You've got to press on to maturity. You can't lay the foundation again. And then he con uh, concludes that first paragraph by saying, and this we shall do. What shall we? We will press on to maturity if God permits. And then the second paragraph answers the question why God would not permit a Christian to press on to maturity. No, he says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age have come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now, right now, we're not going to deal with the interpretation of that. I just want you to see the flow of this passage, its structure. Press on to maturity. If God permits, there is a reason that God possibly would not permit. And then the last paragraph gives an illustration to reinforce that truth. He says, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But on the other hand, if that same ground, instead of producing useful vegetation, produces uh, thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it's in. Those thorns and thistles are for burning. Now, third question, what is the spirit of these verses? Well, it's very, very obvious. The spirit of the text, and going all the way back to Hebrews 5 verse 11, is one of warning. Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, 
is the third of five major warning passages in the book. And its purpose is to show the Christian the peril of not pressing on to maturity. And that's why I have entitled today's message, The Peril of Not Progressing. Fourth question, well, how can we outline Hebrews 6, 1 through 8? Well, it actually is pretty simple. Uh, Again, you have those clear three paragraphs in the Greek text, all connected by the Greek conjunction gar, or our word for. So we just develop an outline using those three paragraphs. Verses 1 through 3, you have God's command. Let us press on to maturity. Verses 4 through 6, you have God's warning about falling away to the point it is impossible to renew them to repentance. And then in the third paragraph, verses 7 and 8, you have God's illustration that there are two possible outcomes, either useful fruit, which brings reward, or the production of worthless fruit, which brings loss. Okay, the fifth question. Now we begin to get into uh, some of the questions that have uh, provided Bible commentators over the years uh, great angst. Uh, To whom are these verses referring? Now, I've already said it, but let's just reinforce it. The context of these verses... Of course, in my, uh, from my perspective, and I think it's just clear beyond any doubt, reveals they are addressed to Christians who are admonished to grow up and mature. I mean, it would, it would just think about it. it. It makes absolutely no sense to admonish non-Christians to press on to Christian maturity. So in, in light of the context, I don't see how anyone could come to the conclusion that he's not addressing believers in this passage. Notice the next point in your notes. Notice the five participles in verses 4 through 6, which describe the individuals to whom the warning pertains to as Christian. Now, the first four synonyms, the first four participles, are are simply synonyms for salvation. Look at them. Uh, uh, Open your Bible, and notice he says, For in the case of those who have, notice the first one, once been what? Enlightened. That's talking about when God's light penetrates your dark heart and brings you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, I mentioned uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10 here, verse 32. He uses this very same word uh, in that way. You might want to turn there. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Again, that's a synonym for their conversion. He says, remember the former days after you were converted, after you were brought to the light of God, how you, how you suffered and, and bore reproach uh, for His namesake. And then the second participle, having tasted the heavenly gift. Having tasted the heavenly gift. Now, folks, that word tasted in the Greek text is a very, very strong word. Matter of fact, it's used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, when it talks about Jesus tasting death for every man. Now, did Jesus taste death fully? Yes, he did. And so, when we look at this word and how it's even used in the book of Hebrews, having tasted of the heavenly gift is talking about what a Christian who has received that heavenly gift. I've taken it in. I've ingested it. Uh, That gift of salvation is mine. And then look at the third participle have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. And again, that word partakers in the Greek text 
Again, a very strong word. It literally means to share, to participate in. This is where we get our concept of fellowship. This is to own something, to possess something, to know something. It's a very intimate word. And then notice the fourth participle. They have tasted what the good word of God and the power of the ages to come. Now, folks, I could spend a lot of time right here. But frankly, I don't believe we need to. I, in my opinion, when, you look, when, you're just, when you're just honest with the Scriptures, I don't know how you could take that description to be anything but what? A believer. But then notice there is a fifth participle, and it's the negative one. Yes, they've been enlightened, and they've tasted the heavenly gift. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good Word of God, and, the, and then have fallen away. And that brings us to question number six. What does the phrase, this is the million dollar question, to be honest, among Bible commentators and teachers. What does the phrase in verse six mean, and then have fallen away? It is impossible. Notice, it is impossible once that happens for them to be renew, uh, to renew them to repentance. That first statement there under your, that question, most commentators Assume this refers, that phrase, fallen away, to apostasy. And now, what is apostasy? It's there for you. It's the deliberate rejection of the Christian faith. As a result, God closes the door to renewal and repentance, confining the apostate to eternal damnation. Now, I believe this is a mistake. And it's a mistake that has led to most of the confusion uh, surrounding this passage. Now, let me just pause right there. We're going to stray from your notes a bit. Just let me provide a little commentary and explain why, when you interpret falling away to be the sin of apostasy, why that's led to so much confusion. Every single Bible teacher, without exception, who interprets the phrase, Fallen away to be the sin of apostasy takes one of three views in this passage. Or, or at least just slight variations of one of these views. But there are basically three views that they all take. The first view is what we could call the loss of salvation view. In this view, those who fall away are genuine believers who lose their salvation due to the sin of apostasy. Now, the problem with this view is what? The plethora of passages that teach the eternal security of the believer. And again, I don't need to say much here. Brother David is sitting there who had almost 30-year ministry here. And then I have followed him in the pulpit. And you have been well instructed about a believer's security. And we believe once saved, always saved because of God's preserving grace. Now, when you come to the second and third views, these are the two views that are held by those who believe the Bible teaches eternal security. And the second view is called the test of genuineness view. And what this view teaches is that the individuals being talked about in verses 4, 5, and 6, that they are church members who profess Jesus but they just appear to be Christians. But then they reveal their true colors. And they come to the point where they reject Christ, 
abandon the church, thus committing the sin of apostasy. And when they fall away, they just simply give clear evidence that they never were genuine uh, believers. Now, folks, that is a reality, right? I mean, that happens. Uh, and that's happened throughout church history to this day. First uh, John 2.19 talks about this. He, there we read, they went out, what, from us. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. So it does happen. But the question is, is this what this passage is teaching? And I don't believe it is. Because what is the problem with this view? Well, the problem with this view is how in the world, again, do you take that description in verses 4 and 5, and apply that to a non-believer. I just don't understand how you can do that. Uh, to say that an unbeliever once and for all had been enlightened, and that's how it reads in the Greek text, aorist tense. Once and all have tasted the heavenly gift. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. And they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, there are, are men that are much better Bible teachers than I could ever dream to be that hold this position. So I, I, say, this, I say this with great humility, but I, I, I think they're driven by their theological perspective more than following the text. Uh, because once they determine this is talking about apostasy, they sort of have to make it fit. And I think that's, I think that's what happens. Uh, and, and what they do is, okay... They've been like, they were just sort of awakened to the truth. Uh, how do they deal with taste it? Well, they get it in their mouth, but they never really swallow it and ingest it. Uh, yeah, they're knowing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't go beyond that. Uh, and again, yeah, they've had a little exposure to the Word of God and, and the power of God, but it, it, it didn't impact their lives. That's how they teach this passage. But again... I just think when you are just honest with the text, you look at the words that are used, how they're used in the rest of Hebrews, there's no other conclusion you can come to than these folks are believers. Now, the fundamental problem with all three of those views is every one of them assumes falling away is referring to the sin of apostasy, which, again, I believe forces them to develop an interpretation that fits their theological perspective. Those that have a strong Arminian position where they emphasize the free will of man and they believe that a believer can be saved and lost, well, they'll jump to, okay, they're the genuine believers and this is the greatest proof text that a believer can lose his salvation. And then you have those that come more from a uh, sovereignty of God perspective, reform perspective. They say, wait a minute. You know, if these are genuine believers, they can't commit the sin of apostasy. That's impossible for them to be condemned to eternal damnation. So it must not be uh, believers. Oh, I didn't mention the third view, did I? The third view, to be honest, again, some wonderful men take this view. Warren Wiersbe is one. Uh, but I, I've just never been able to understand it. It's what you could call the hypothetical view. And the hypothetical view, those who fall away, it is, yes, describing believers. But the writer of Hebrews is presenting a hypothetical case to show what would happen if it were possible 
for a believer to fall away from salvation, although in reality that is not possible. Now, my, you know, my question here is why? I mean, what's the point? And textually, there's a tremendous problem. The problem with this view is you have to interpret the phrase, have fallen away, as reading, if they fall away, which the King James Version does. But in the Greek text, there is no if. It's not these are believers, and if they fall away, this would happen. No, it's they're believers, and they what? They have fallen away. In fact, it's a reality. There's no if to it. So, look at your notes once again, and let me give you a fourth view. And, of course, this is the view I believe that I hold to, and I believe is true to this text and to the larger context of the book of Hebrews, and it brings a very strong message to believers, a very, very strong warning that we need to heed. The Greek word translated fallen away, everybody with me? That's where we are in the notes. The Greek word translated fallen away is peripipto, and Hebrews 6.6 6 is the only occurrence of this word in the entire New Testament. Although derivatives of this word are used, the word literally means to fall beside, to go astray, to miss. Next point in your notes. When you look at the uses of this word and all its derivatives in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When you look at every use of this word that you can find in classical Greek over about a 300-year period of time, that would include this, uh, this period. And when you look at Koine Greek, which is biblical Greek, you can't find one time that it refers to apostasy. It's never used that way. It's never used in the Septuagint that way. It's never used in classical Greek. It's never used in Koine Greek. And I think that is a... Uh, a very strong argument, and, and it makes you wonder, why do they so quickly jump to the conclusion that falling away is referring to apostasy when you cannot find any other occurrence of the use of that, of a word being used in that way? Now, here's where we get into what I think are the keys, the interpretive key, the next point, the interpretive key that unlocks the door is how the derivatives of this word are used earlier in the book uh, in, uh, of Hebrews in 4.11, 3.12, and 17 to describe the failure of the wilderness generation recorded in Numbers 14. Go back to Hebrews 4.11. In other words, I think the answer is right in the book of Hebrews itself. Remember in chapters 3 and 4, we had that second warning of the book, about not doubting God's Word, about disbelieving God's Word, like the children of Israel did, and how they didn't combine faith to the hearing of God's Word, therefore it did not profit them. And as a result, although they were the redeemed people of God, they forfeited what? Rest in this life, the promised land, as well as eternal reward. And look at 4.11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. There you have it. It says you're to be diligent to enter the rest. We talked about this in, when we looked at verse, uh, chapters 3 and 4. He's talking about the rest of faith. God wants, as we trust Him, He wants to bring rest to your life. 
not, not in absence of pain and suffering and trial, but in the midst of the storm, he says, I want to bring you to a place of rest, of peace. And rest and peace only comes through trust. The greater the trust, the greater the rest. But if you refuse to trust, if you refuse to rely on God, you forfeit that rest. You forfeit His peace. You forfeit all that He wants to do for you like they forfeited the promised land. And then look at chapter 3, verse 12. Again, in the context of referring to the wilderness generation. It says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Notice, in falling away from the living God. So I, I think clearly, when he talks about being fallen away in Hebrews 6, the answer to what he means about that is here in chapters 3 and 4. He says, just simply look back to that wilderness generation. Look at their failure. That's what it means to fall away from God as a redeemed people. And then verse 17, And with whom uh, was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies, here's another derivative of the word, fell in the wilderness, who fell in the wilderness. And that's why, by the way, throughout this passage, what's the reoccurring phrase? Today. Today. If you hear His voice, don't what? Don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Delay. In other words, again, look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 4. This is why the Word of God did not profit them. And, we're, and we can be in danger of doing the same thing as believers today. He says, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, and their good news was the promised land. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Now look at the next statement in your notes. I'm going to read it through and then we're going to turn to Numbers 14 and walk through this. Therefore, to fall away means to backslide in a way that parallels what happened in Numbers 14. When Israel despite God's many blessings, repeatedly, and that's a key word. There was a pattern here. This wasn't a one-time failure at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to go to the promised land. No, they repeatedly refused. They refused to trust and obey God, which culminated in their refusal to press on to the promised land. Although they were redeemed by the Lord, and although God forgave them for their unbelief and disobedience, God swore as a consequence of their sin, they would not enter His rest. When they tried to repent, and they did, to enter the promised land, the door was closed. Renewal to the promised land through repentance had become impossible. Now, turn to Numbers 14. Let's walk through this. Look at the, this example. Look at, um, let's begin at verse 1. Uh, and, and verse 1, uh, uh, chapter 13, uh, they've received the report from the spies that were sent out. Remember, Joshua and Caleb put their reliance in God. They came back with a good report. 
man, this land is more than we ever could have dreamed of. God is so good, and God's going to go with us, and He's going to go before our armies, and He's going to give us the victory. Let's go, folks. Let's press on to what God is giving us. But then there were ten other spies that what? Gave a bad report. Oh, man, there are giants in the land. They're going to squash us like grasshoppers, and oh, it's going to be awful, awful. And then here's how the people responded. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey." Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And then you'll... And then there's this intercession of Moses for the people in light of their sin and rebellion. Look at verse 19. We, we don't have time to walk through all of this. He says, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy love and kindness, just as thou also hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And verse 20, so the Lord said, I have pardoned them. I've forgiven them, Moses, according to your word. But then, notice, there's a consequence. They're forgiven, but there's a consequence. Look at verse 21. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Now let me just pause right there. Notice, God forgave them, but is there a consequence of their repeated? Don't miss that. He talks about this people who've put me to test these ten times. In other words, the, the larger context is, here are a people that were redeemed from Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. God blessed them. He did the miracle at the Red Sea. He supernaturally provided rain down bread from heaven, quail on occasion, brought water out of rocks. I mean, the, the thought is, what more could I have done, God is saying, And you still won't trust me. You still refuse. 
you grumble and you complain. You chaff against all the trials and tribulations, refusing to trust. And God says, okay, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And I swear in my wrath, he said, you will not enter the promised land. And, of course, you know they did not. And they wandered around in the wilderness uh, for close to 40 years until every one of that generation lay dead. And then God allowed them to enter. And matter of fact, there's some irony in that. Uh, again, we don't have time to read it. God says, I'm going to tell you something, though. You know, your children that you said would become prey to the enemy, that the enemy would devour, your children are going into the promised land. You're not, but they're going to see it. And he says, your children are going to suffer because of your lack of faith. They're going to suffer with you for many years in the world, but I'm going to get them in, but not you, but not you. There's a consequence. And then, notice, turn to verse 39. Notice, so they're, 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 they're given this message that they're forgiven, you're forgiven, but there's a consequence. God's not going to permit you. He's not going to permit you to go into the promised land. You have forfeited that opportunity. And notice the response of the people. And when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp, Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as harm. You see how this is the perfect illustration of what's being talked about in Hebrews 6, 1, 8? God says, press on to maturity, and this we will do if God permits. But Christian, you need to beware. Because there's a point that you can come to If you develop a pattern of refusing to rely on God in your trials, well, God just says, okay, if that's the way you want it, you're on your own. And you're going to lose the rest of faith I would have given you in this life. And you'll lose eternal reward as well. And then notice how the illustration also fits, how it was impossible then to renew them to repentance. Israel tried to repent, but the door had already been shut. And it was not permitted them. Now look at the next statement in your notes. It's obvious we'll save the application portion for next Sunday. Throughout the wilderness years, God continued to provide for and protect His people. Yet over the the period of time, one by one, their bodies fell in the wilderness until all the rebellious generation died. They did not lose their salvation... I'll say that again. They did not lose their salvation, but they did lose the rest God offered them in this life and eternal rewards in the next. They forfeited the opportunity God had given them, not only in this life, but to no reward in the next. Now look at the next statement. The Christian today 
faces the same peril by not pressing on to maturity. A Christian cannot lose his salvation, but he can go far and long enough in a backslidden state that God's chastisement is the loss of faith's rest in this life and eternal rewards in the next, with renewal through repentance being impossible. As it says in Psalm 81, referring to the wilderness generation in 11 and 13, but my people, notice, my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, to walk in their own devices. Oh, you can, is, oh you, can't you feel the, God's pain? Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And he goes into how he would have fed them with the finest of wheat, how he would have blessed them in so many, many different ways. But it was because of their refusal to trust. So if you develop this pattern of in life's trials, of refusing to trust God, of complaining, murmuring, questioning. God said, now what you need to be careful, because there's a point you can come to where I'll just say, okay, is that what you want? Then you can have it for the rest of your life here on earth. And you're also going to lose, not salvation, but reward in the next. Now, turn to, notice the next statement in your notes. This interpretation is consistent with Paul's teachings uh, the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. Turn over there to 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. It's a great passage to correlate this with. And you have to begin in chapter 9, verse 24. And he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all, circle that word all, they all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. By the way, in the Greek text, that reads, run in such a way that you may all win. The thought is not that we're all in a race and only one of us is going to get God's prize. No, he's just making an analogy. He says, when folks run in a race, they run to what? Win. That's the point he's making. They run to win the prize. So he says, you, you run to win. You run to advance. You run to press on to finish that course God has laid out for you, to faithfully cross the finish line. So he says, we all run. And then he says, verse 25, And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's talking about that eternal reward. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I have purpose. I'm not just aimlessly living life. Jesus is my passion, my pursuit. I'm wanting to press on to maturity, to be lost in His presence, to be found in His likeness, to grow in His graces. He says, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is not talking about the, with that word disqual- the loss of salvation. He's talking about, if I'm not careful, I could be put on a shelf in terms of my service for God. I can only minister to others as God ministers to me. In other words, I can only impart to you what, what, what I truly possess. So Paul is basically saying, listen folks, I'm running to win, and I want to stay real, I want to stay genuine, I want to stay close to God, so that God can use me to accomplish the purposes He had for me. And then chapter 10. 
for. There's that word, gar, the Greek conjunction. That's tying this back up to what he just said. That analogy of that race and everybody running, running to win the prize. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and he's talking about the wilderness generation, they were encircled the word all. They were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. And then verse 5, nevertheless with most of them God was not well pleased. In other words, he said, they all began the race, they started well, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, except for what? Joshua and Caleb. And then notice verse 6. Now, these things happen as examples for us as believers, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved, and do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorality as some of, uh, uh, immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he what? Fall. Lest he fall. Now, seventh question. Why is the warning in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, so serious? Why is it so serious and the consequences so severe? The warning is so serious... And the consequences are so severe because of the dishonoring of Christ involved in falling away. Hebrews 6.6 6 reads, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. See, when a believer falls into unbelief and disobedience, when he develops a pattern of not relying upon God, of complaining, murmuring, selfishness, where it's, it's all about me then I'm, expo- I'm, I'm spurning, I'm literally spurning the redemptive work of Christ. Because I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. I'm His to live for His glory. And not only am I spurning the redemptive work of Christ, I'm exposing Jesus Christ to public shame because of my testimony, my terrible, terrible testimony. Now, to understand the seriousness of the sin of falling away from God's point of view, we won't do this. We don't have time. But I encourage you to read Psalm 78, 81, and 106. And you read those psalms as, as it relates to the wilderness generation, and you circle every word or phrase that describes the wilderness generation. How they spurned God, they pained God, they grieved God, they did not believe God. And don't miss the larger context. It's always in the context of God's blessing. God just blessed them, blessed them, blessed them, blessed them, blessed them. And goodness gracious, in light of that, you would expect it, what? Them to reciprocate in trust because God proved himself to be worthy of their trust. But instead of trust, they did the very opposite. They refused to believe God. They, they stayed in their stubborn ways, wanting to control things and manipulate things. And therefore, when every trial came, when every difficulty came, instead of trusting a God who had already proved himself worthy of their trust, there was nothing more that he could do. 
they complained. Got mad at God, angry at God, challenging God and, he, and His leadership. Question number eight, and then we'll close it out and deal with the application next Sunday when we have the Lord's Supper. What does the concluding illustration teach in verses 7 and 8? Uh, go back there very, very quickly. Verses 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it, that same ground, if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and its end is for burning. See, the appropriateness, following in your notes, the appropriateness of the warning in verses 4 through 6 is clarified by the illustration which, notice, does not describe two kinds of land, but rather two possible outcomes from the same land, which can produce either useful vegetation or worthless thorns and thistles. You would expect land that drinks in plentiful rain to bear fruit, not thorns, just as you would expect the Christian who has been showered with God's blessings to produce fruit and not thorns. A great example of this, let me read it for you, just take a moment. Isaiah chapter 5, listen to this example. He says, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he, don't miss this, then he expected it to produce good grapes. And you would expect that in light of all that he had done to water it, to till it, to fertilize it. But it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Listen to this. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And listen, folks, every Christian can say that looking God. God, what more could you possibly do for me than what you've already done? In Jesus Christ. And so he raises that quote. Well, what more, what more could I have done? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its heads, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled uh, upon the ground, and it will lay waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds... Uh, to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And then notice, and we'll conclude with this next statement in your notes. Notice, the worthless thorns and thistles are burned, not the field. And that's clear in the text when you look at the text. It's not the ground that's burned up. It's the worthless thorns and thistles. Believers do not lose their salvation, but rather their barren branches are burned up under the scorching flame of the judgment seat of Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. We will close with this passage. But this is the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians, and it's a perfect correlation to what we've seen in Hebrews 6. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Going back to Hebrews 6, 
The foundation has been laid. It's Jesus. He's blessed you. He's given you every spiritual blessing in the, in the spiritual places. He's provided you the riches of His grace. He's provided you His empowerment. The same power that raised Jesus from that. Don't, now you need to build on that foundation. That's what He's talking about. Now, if any man builds upon it, the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. Talking about that day when we will face Jesus Christ. Eye to eye. The day will show it because it will also be revealed with fire, the fire of His holiness. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built upon it, remains, he shall receive what? A reward. That would be synonymous to Hebrews 6. He'll receive what? God's blessing. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. So that illustration is a perfect illustration of what happens if a believer develops a pattern of refusing to rely upon God in life's trials and circumstances, and develops a pattern of grumbling, murmuring, selfishness. God says, what more could I have done for you? I mean, I expected your life to produce fruit for me. I expected to, you know, to, to, for you to find your pleasure in me, for me to find your pleasure. And, in, and I've done nothing but to show that I'm worthy of your trust. There's nothing more I can do. I mean, if you're going to spurn what me sending Jesus on the cross and turn your back on that and not try, then what more can I do? And then all we're saying, now only God knows when that point is. You know, you say, well, Andy, when does that point come where God says, like he did the children, that's it. That's God's decision. He's the sovereign Lord. But the warning in this passage is, what? It can happen to a believer, too. And therefore, we're right back to what? Today. 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 Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. See, yes, it is a pattern that brings you to that point, but that pattern begins with what? The first step of not responding to that conviction, not responding to that leadership God's given you to step out and to advance, to mature, to be used by Him. So next Sunday, we'll focus on the application of this truth to our lives, which is uh, very, very important.